Thank you, Nick. You know, there's a little clock up here, right on the pulpit, that I look at from time to time. Not on Sundays, but I just look at it from time to time. And someone has put it ahead about 15 minutes. I'm just... I'll never do it again. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't funny. All right. I want to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 1. Just uh, If you'd like to follow along, 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first four verses, though. And then I'm going to give you a test. Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You got that? His divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and his excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious, his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. And here's the test. Maybe not what you think. Here's the test. Don't blink. Some of you have fallen by the wayside. How many of you have already blinked? <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, you can obey that command for a few seconds, uh, maybe a minute, I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, over the long haul, obedience to the command, don't blink, gets harder. God says, don't sin. And you can obey that command for any given moment, but the truth of the matter is, over the long haul, God's command not to sin gets harder. Why is that? We've been studying through the book of Romans. And if you are a visitor here, we ordinarily go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and, and study the, the passage in an expository way. Um, and in, in, in the book of Romans, and ch- as we went through chapter 7 about four years ago, <laughs> I'm kidding. As we went through chapter 7, we read about the civil war that our flesh wages against our redeemed spirit. Romans chapter 7, verse 15 says, For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now, that struggle is not the goal of the Christian life, but it's not unusual either. What I want you to do is to consider three words. The three words are penalty, presence, and power. 
In regeneration, when we are saved, we are redeemed from sin's penalty. That's, that's gone. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but we have not been redeemed from sin's presence. So we're redeemed from sin's penalty, but when we are in heaven at one day in the future, either when we die to be with the Lord or when he comes in the second coming, and not until then, we will be redeemed at that time from sin's presence. Now, here's the deal. I have no authority. I have no control over the penalty of sin. He redeems me from that. That's God's work. I have no control over the presence of sin. It's just going to be there in my life until I go to be with him. However, there's one more term, and that's sin's power. That is in part, at least, up to us. The process of what the Bible calls sanctification, a wonderful word that describes being conformed to the image of his son, the phrase that we've been looking at in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is all about gaining victory over sin's power in our lives. And, and I know you can make the case that all the New Testament is about gaining, uh, gaining uh, uh, victory over sin's power. But, you know, think about this. Sin's penalty, God's work, it's done. Sin's presence, God work, God's work, it will be done. But sin's power, God's work, and our work. Now, last week we said that this work of diminishing sin's power over you, we looked at it and how it was encapsulated in Romans 8.29. The little phrase, and this is our third study in, in those three verses. God has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. We studied that phrase last week, and you, you probably thought I was done with that phrase last week, didn't you? You blinked. Today, what I want us to do is, in a sense, I want us to look under the hood of the biblical teaching of, self, of sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification, and my goal is, as I said, to, this is going to be more of a topical sermon today. My goal, and we'll be considering many, many passages, but as we look at those many passages, I want us to understand better the process of diminishing sin's power in our lives so that we don't fool ourselves into thinking that on the one hand, and this is Satan's lie, on the one hand, I, I'm, I've got no victory. I'm so pathetic that I have no hope of any victory, so why try? Or, on the other hand, of thinking, you know, I am so blessed with grace that God won't hold me accountable if I live like the world. No, neither one of those is true. Maybe you've seen something like this. I want to introduce you to the seven surefire steps of spirit-filled sanctification. You ready? First one, avoid drinking, smoking, and drugs. Second, witness daily. Third, study the Bible daily hour and a half every morning. How many of you convicted already? Fourth, give money until it hurts. 
Fifth, pray without ceasing. Sixth, be led by the Spirit, but of course avoid speaking in tongues. Seven, give money till it hurts. Now, how many of you, of you have heard messages that, that maybe kind of echo ideas like this? That, you know, here's the surefire formula for... Now, by the way, those of you who are raised in this church could not raise your hands on that question. <laughs> we won't allow that. Uh, you know, it, is there some secret, some hidden sure, seven surefire steps in some passage somewhere that I'm missing? And the answer is no. There's no place in Scripture that gives any sanctification recipe. You know, here are the seven ingredients, throw them in the pot, boil on 350 for an hour and a half. There, there's no, nothing like that in the Bible. Now, you could reduce the single command, obey, uh, to, 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 to be really, that's the closest thing to a formula I think we have. And we've talked about that word, the Greek word obey, which means to hear under. And the idea is God is authoritative, um, God's word is authoritative over us, and we place ourselves underneath it to hear under what he says. That's a, that's a great word picture of sanctification. That's how I think of it. And, and, and I, you know, is, is, is Christ over me, or is the world over me, or the culture over me? Is it God's word over me, or am I on the throne of my life? So that's one of the ways that I think of it. But instead of giving us one formula, the Bible describes the process of becoming conformed to the image of His Son, of becoming more like Jesus in many ways. Not just in one way. Here are a few that I put together uh, from memory and from scanning through some of the epistles. And I'm going to warn you that there are more than seven items on my list. Okay? Here we go. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. By means of the Spirit. Put on the new self. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be filled with the Spirit. Put on love. And consider yourselves dead to sin. That's the formula. You got it? This is what... Oh, wait a minute. There's more. Clothe yourselves with Christ. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from every form of evil. Discipline yourselves for godliness. Flee temptation. Pursue a godly life. Fight the good fight of faith. Work out your salvation, for it's God who's at work in you. You got it? That's the formula. Wait a minute. There's more. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Submit to God. Draw near to God. Study Scripture carefully. Memorize the word. I word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Pray without ceasing. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Put on the whole armor of God. Clothe yourselves with humility. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Be vigilant against spiritual attacks. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Just say no to God, ungodliness and live a controlled life. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. Suffer as a prerequisite to godliness. Draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. God will sanctify you entirely. He will bring it to pass. 
So how do you like the list? Where's the formula? Which one of the seven surefire steps should I pick? Or maybe more to the point, which one should I leave out? Well, none of them. Here's a, here's a question for you. Are there different ways that different people pursue holiness? Gary, where are you going with this? Well, I mean, I remember uh, when I was in college, there was a, a booklet on how to live the spirit-filled life. And it was a really good, actually. Um, it was a little booklet that was put out, and a lot of people had it, how to live the spirit-filled life. But what that booklet did was it took one of those and then sort of enlarged it to the whole process. And the thing is, what if the processes of holiness as they are worked out from each person are as individual as fingerprints? This is one of Gary's heresies. Okay? It's clear that the descriptions and the practices of sanctification resonate differently with different people. For example, some people do journaling in their devotions, and it deepens their devotions. And, and for, for many who do that, or for some who, who do that, they think everyone should do journaling and maybe go with them to journaling conferences, and if they don't do it, then they're missing out and maybe get offended if you don't go with them. Now, I'm, I'm taking that to kind of an extreme for some people, it's singing as a part of your devotions, which is a wonderful thing to do. For others, it's praying back Scripture as a part of their time with the Lord. All of these things are good. What I'm saying is there's a lot of things that we could be doing to enrich and deepen our walk with the Lord. And I, I would be hesitant when Scripture does not put all of us in the same mold to insist that you have to follow the same spiritual disciplines that I follow. But let me hasten to say, let me hasten to say this. Make sure you hear me say this. It is always better to do something rather than nothing. Now, this should clue us in. When you look at Scripture, Scripture is written in so many different ways. Some people are sort of aesthetically wired and the Psalms resonate with them. Some people appreciate the logic of an argument, and Romans or a book like that resonates with them. Some respond to stories like in 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, the Gospels, the book of Acts. But here's the deal I mean, we are all of us to learn all of Scripture, okay? We're all of us to learn all of Scripture. But not all of us will respond to every passage in the same way. We, I mean, we know this kind of preference that, that people have different preferences on preachers. Uh, some of the people I hear on, on, on Moody Radio, um, I probably, you know, turn them off. And there are other people, other uh, preachers that I just love to listen to. By the way, it's not a new thing, is it? Go to Corinth, right? The, the uh, uh, blue-collar preacher, Peter. Some would say, I'm a Peter, I'm a Cephas. Some would say, well, no, I'm, I'm of the logician, Paul. And others would say, no, I'm of the eloquent man, Apollos. You know, just different things. God has created us 
to be in. And by the way, all three of them were preaching the same message. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The message was the same. The men were different. God has created us to be individual and unique. And maybe that's why in God's creative wisdom, Scripture describes holiness in so many different ways and different genres and different contexts. And, and what I'm saying is, uh, and, and as we've been going through Romans, going through chapter 8, and now having, having finished up uh, in, in, in verse 30, as we've gone through that, what I'm saying is, I cannot put before you a one-size-fits-all flowchart for sanctification. But we've just looked at a host of passages. And by the way, that's not all. There are many more. I just stopped. I didn't have more time. A host of passages that describe being conformed to the image of his son. And you could pick any one of them. And any one of them is rich and deep and will help you in your walk with the Lord, and in the process of being conformed to the image of his son. So what I want to do is I want to present you with some ideas. I want to present you with some common threads, some common assumptions that I believe can be harvested from and are anchored in those passages. But I'm not going to take any one of them and make a booklet out of it. You could have, there, there, there are 29 of them. Actually, the 30 of them. And, you know, I'm not going to take one of them and make a booklet out of it and, 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 uh, well, you know what I'm saying. But I'm going to start by looking at uh, Philippians. So turn with me to the book of Philippians. I'm going to start at chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I want to make a couple of observations here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And my question is this. Who begins the process that ends in our glorification? We've seen that in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Philippians 1 says the same thing in verse 6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you look in chapter 2, so he who began it is going to perfect it. God is the one who began it. God is the one who will complete that work. In Philippians chapter 2, look in verse, 13, verse, um, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we've said before, it's not work for your salvation. It's in you, work out your salvation, incarnated in, your, in the world around you, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Next verse. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good purposes, for his good pleasure. So who works? Do we work? A, yes, B, no. Do we work? Does God work? We both work. So Philippians 2 makes this clear. The basis of this command, work out your own salvation, is God's enablement. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God begins the good work. God will complete that good work. But you are not passive. You are to be active in the process of being redeemed from the power of sin in your life until we enter into his presence and sin is no longer a part of our lives. Here's the deal. 
On the one hand, you have spiritual work to do to exercise self-control over the flesh. On the other hand, this is a spiritual work that you cannot do. You don't have the power. No matter how hard I try on my own, I can't do it. And that's where God's provision comes into play. By the way, self-control over the flesh is not the fruit of my hard work. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. Now, I've been thinking about this for a lot of years. And, and to me, um, that list I gave you and others that we could add to that list, if you look at that list, there are two kinds of statements. There are our, there are our obey commands and there are God's provision commands or statements. God's provision promises. Now, you know what I mean by our obey commands, where God says, do this, or live this way. Or, or... But what are God's provision promises? This is the God is at work in you part. To will and to work for his good pleasure. How does God do that? Now, I've said, I, I, I've said for decades that God has given us three resources for spiritual growth. The word of God over us. The spirit of God within us and the body of Christ around us. Those are the three resources for spiritual growth. The Word of God over us, the Spirit of God within us, the body of Christ without, around us. The Spirit helps our weaknesses. In prayer, in, in Romans 8, He equips us, He illumines us, and He applies the Word of God to our hearts. The Word of God has its own intrinsic power, which Jesus said is a means of sanctification. Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. So the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the body of Christ is another part of God's provision. These are, this is God's provision for the process where we encourage one another in the body of Christ. We pray for one another. We hold each other accountable. We practice all those one another's that we see in Scripture. Here's what I'm saying. God commands us to obey. But God also equips us to obey what he commands with the spirit, the word, and the church. Now, up to this point, I've been kind of analyzing things. Let's look at how this applies and, and dig in more deeply in a, a more focused way to these three resources. First of all, we've talked about the three resources. I'm going to look at them, and then I'm going to add a fourth component which you'll see in a moment. First of all, God's Spirit is powerful. In Acts 1.8, you shall receive power, right, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. More powerful than the world, the flesh, the devil. More powerful than any tug of persistent sin in your life. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In verse 12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The spirit of God is powerful. It's the spirit who makes the difference between the frustrated defeat in Romans 7 
and the victory of Romans 8. You don't find the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in Romans 7 at all, but in Romans 8, 17 times the word Spirit occurs, referring to the Holy Spirit. And we've been studying Romans 8. But don't think that just because I point out that the word Spirit occurs 17 times, that there is some mystical empowerment that's going on inside of you that's separate from God's Word or Christ's body. It's all, they all work in concert together. Yeah, do you remember the upper room discourse in John 14 through 16? Jesus said, I'm going to leave you. It's better for you that I leave you. And I'm going to send you another comforter. This is a Greek word for another that means another of the same kind. Another of the same kind comforter, just like me. Except, here's the difference. I can only be with you, but he will be in you. And he, gives, he, he tells the disciples the night before he's going to the cross, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the word. He's going to recall to your minds what I've told to you. And there's more I'd like to say to you, but you don't have the spiritual equipment to handle it right now. He will guide you into all the truth and will disclose to you what is to come. He will disclose it to you. He will disclose it to you. He will disclose it to you. Three times he says that. You get in the picture. The Holy Spirit is powerful. And it's part of God's process of applying these other components to being conformed to the image of his son. They all work in concert together. Secondly, God's word is powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. Able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119. Here's an interesting one. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. There's an interesting verse here that has a parallel in Ephesians chapter 5. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 16, we read, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word means to inhabit you, to colonize within you in, in a way like a, a, a citizen would have citizen rights. Give the, whole, give the word of God rights within you. Yield to what the word of God says. That's what that means. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever you do, Word or deed to the Lord. You've got the same passage in Ephesians. And you know what the parallel is there? Producing exactly the same results. Exactly the same results. Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as letting the word of Christ richly inhabit you. See, it's all a part of the same thing. God's word is powerful. Why do we need God's word? Because it, cha it, cha it changes how we think. God wants us to think right. At the men's retreat uh, last weekend, Sherman Smith, we, we, there's a number of things that Sherman Smith said, our, our speaker, that we call, Sher that are called Shermanisms. But one of the things he said was this, if you think right, you will live right. And if you aren't living right, then you aren't thinking right. Is this borne out in scripture? You bet. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. 
that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of him, the one who created him. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus in Philippians 2. Philippians 4, think on these things. And of course, we're familiar with the one that we're coming up on, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where do we learn to think right? Well, God's word. Jesus said it, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Now, some people put the cart before the horse. First, I've got to get motivated. And then I'll think right. It's the other way around. Right motivation comes from right thinking, and right thinking comes from God's Word. Scripture never says, get fired up, get motivated. You will never always be motivated. You have to learn to be disciplined. God's Word is foundational to being disciplined. Now, For a, a moment here, this will probably reveal more than I should about how I'm wired, but I'm going to take you back to seminary days for me, a little bit over 40 years ago at Dallas Theological Seminary, and tell you a tale of two teachers. There was one professor on campus that everybody loved, uh, and, and, and he, he was great. Everybody wanted to have him as a teacher. He was funny. He was hilarious. His classes were very entertaining. He was engaging, and you left his classes absolutely motivated to change your life, and then beyond that, to change the world. It was great. And we all loved that guy. But his content was minimal. And I didn't, to me, I didn't line up to take his classes uh, because two out, two, about two hours after the class was over, my motivation faded. My emotions got diluted by other concerns. And I, I could tell myself, okay, well, I'll, I'll think about what he said later and get motivated again. But it never happened for me. Now, having said that, there were other men on campus whose lives were wonderfully changed by this man's life and by his teaching, okay? There's another professor on campus who was dry, exacting, precise, and whose persistent demands on me changed the way that I think. He was socially awkward. He never gave me the time of day. But I could never thank that man enough. He changed the way I think, and he changed my life. During the four years I was there, there was a very famous Bible conference. We had a lot of wonderful speakers come in. But a very famous Bible conference speaker came to campus for a three-day series in chapel, and he began. The very first thing he said when he got up was, Men, I want your hearts. And the faculty were behind him. He said, these fellows can have your heads. I want your hearts. And I sat there thinking, because they have my head, they have my heart. I'm not listening to you. Not the most spiritual response. But for three days, I sat there not listening to him. <laughs> I really missed it because he was great. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I felt that he had disrespected these men who had had such impact on me. And so I, I guess you could say I reacted from the heart. Um, okay, here's what I've said so far. The, uh, what we've said so far is that the Holy Spirit is powerful. 
God's Word is powerful. The Holy Spirit takes information and turns it into spiritual transformation. And that means that your own individual time in God's Word is critical. It also means, ready, here it comes, that corporate worship, where you're taught God's Word, where you come together, is critical. That's why we are a Bible teaching church, which leads me to this point. Christ's church is powerful. You know, the first two are infallible, God's Spirit and God's Word. Christ's church, not so much. We have been described, I think the best description I ever heard of the church is a messy grace. We are a messy grace. But the body of Christ is where you engage in worship, where you receive teaching, encouragement in the one another, so many of the one another's of the Word of God. Encouragement and discipleship and accountability. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Coming for corporate worship on Sunday morning is not just for you, by the way. It's also for your children. Your attitude towards the body of Christ is forming their attitude towards the body of Christ. Let's be blunt. Jesus is in love. Jesus is in love with the church. He loved the church and gave himself for her. One day she will be his bride. Do you, my question is, do you love what Jesus loves? Simple question. Do you love what Jesus loves? Because he's in love with the church. And are you training your children to love what Jesus loves? Because if not, then first, you are removing from their lives one of God's resources for growth. And second, what are you teaching them? They need to see the band of brothers, the circle of sisters, as we grow together. You can get sermon information from one of our podcasts. But that's only a part of corporate worship. It's coming together. It's, it's living life together. And if there's anybody here thinking, Gary, you're coming close to being a legalist. I would say, no, I'm just loving you and telling you the truth. Whether you come or not, whether you're committed or not, doesn't affect me. But it will affect you and it will affect your family. We need the body of Christ. Corporate worship together. Conducting the, engaged in the one another's together. So, all right, we have the Word of God over us, the Spirit of God within us, the body of Christ around us, like a three-legged stool. What, what are the cross pieces that tie those things together? That is time. Time is the air that we breathe while God uses the Word, the church, the Spirit to conform us to the image of His Son. Habit patterns of obedience developed over time are powerful. 1 Timothy 4.7 says, discipline yourselves for godliness. And the word discipline is the word from which we get our word gymnasium. That's why the older versions translate this, exercise yourselves for godliness. That implies a process. It implies something that's repeated and practiced. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 says, For everyone who partakes 
only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. So you're born, you're a baby Christian, but you've got to grow through practice, through conducting the same spiritual disciplines. But solid food is for the mature. Listen, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then, of course, there's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation. God is at work in you. That takes time. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And I love the inference from that. And that is that you cannot live the spiritual life tomorrow. I can have all kinds of intentions about how holy I'm going to be three months from now. But the good news is that when I blow it, every day is a new day. God won't answer my prayer to make me holy three months from now. God will answer my prayer to make me holy today. Take up my cross daily and follow me. God has wired us with this wonderful gift called habit. The fruit of the Spirit, this is where the fruit of the Spirit of self-control aligns with how God has wired us to produce godly discipline. And this takes time and Patience, there is no such thing as instant spirituality, okay? The Bible makes a distinction between being spirit-filled, which can happen from the moment of salvation, and being spiritual or mature, which takes time. And that distinction is for another study on another day. When you first, when you first learn to drive, you get in the car, you close the door, you look around at all those controls. You know, you're 15 years old. Your parents are trying to help you learn how to drive. And, and uh, you adjust the seat. Then you adjust the mirrors on the sides and up, up above. Then you look at all the gauges, try to figure out what they mean. Then you start the car. And then you listen to the engine for a while and put it in gear. And you increase the gas. Okay, not so much. I had a 383-68 Barracuda. Life was good. Eight miles to the gallon. (laughs) But eight wonderful miles. So you put on a little gas. And then when you brake, you don't stomp on the brake. You you push it slowly down. You, You know, you... Okay, you understand, it's a process, it's a process. How many of you get in your car now and think through all of those things all over again? No, you get in the car, start the car, you're on your way while debating, all the while debating predestination, right? It's become a habit process for you. And my understanding is that it takes a month to six weeks to break an old habit and form a new one. How does that work? I don't know. Sounded good when I read it somewhere. But people are different. Change won't take place without the Word of God, without the Spirit of God, without the body of Christ, and patience over time. But I want instant change. Look, what comes easily won't last. And what lasts won't come easily. I'll give you an example of one way that I think this works. When you are tempted to sin, and all of us, everybody in this room is tempted to sin, 
Most all of us, including myself, we have chronic sins. Just, I'm always dealing with this. Wish I weren't part of my life. Okay. When you are tempted to sin, pray, Lord, help me. Go to Him. And then when you do that, then the Holy Spirit makes that awareness of His presence into a spiritual wedge so that now you are more aware, you are thinking, you're thinking, and you're no longer on cruise control toward that sin, but instead you're making a more conscious choice whether not to sin or whether to yield and sin. And now as you move closer to that decision point, to sin or not, the stakes become a little bit higher. Because now as you make this conscious choice, you're either saying consciously yes to the sin and no to God or yes to God and no to the sin. And all of this happens in a split second. When you say yes to God and no to the sin, what has happened is that the spirit has short circuited the default path to sin. So that if you have a chronic ongoing sin in your life and you say yes to God and no to sin, just this once, just this once, and then the next time you say yes to God and no to the sin, one more time, and again, and again, and then you take up your cross daily, and you say yes to God and no to the sin, you wake up in the morning, you do it again, yes to God, no to the sin, 37 minutes later you do it again, yes to God, no to the sin, you rewire your habit patterns so that over time your default changes and adjusts and is no longer that in that trajectory toward that sin, but rather in a trajectory to obey God when that temptation comes to you. You're never going to be free from it. But in a sense, sanctification for someone with chronic sinful habits, which is just about all of us, sanctification is all about short-circuiting the wiring that you have allowed sin to put into place. When we obey in the moment-by-moment decisions, those accretions of moment-by-moment decisions and obedience become a habit of obedience so that obedience becomes the norm and disobedience becomes abnormal for my daily life. So just, okay, Maybe all that I've just gone through is just scraping the stratosphere. It's how I'm wired. Maybe how you are. But just try this. Next time you're tempted to sin, just pray, Lord, help me. When the temptation comes, just Lord, help me. See what happens. Now, I've attempted to, in a way, do sort of an x-ray of sanctification while also trying to put a little bit of meat onto those bones. And there's a lot to think about, to study, to pray about, and apply here. But I want to close with three observations. First of all, we've said this before. We'll say it again. Sin makes no sense. It's illogical. Get smart. Think. Every time I choose to sin, I face an internal struggle. And at that point as a Christian, I have to suppress the spirit, the word, the church. In other words, 
I irrationalize sin. I don't rationalize it. Now, before I was saved, I could rationalize sin because it made logical sense that if there is no being to whom I am accountable, then I can choose sin and be consistent. But now, after I'm saved, it makes no sense because when I disobey, I'm choosing what I want, what I want now over what I want most. Repeat that. I'm choosing what I want now over what I want most. I cannot willfully sin as a believer and remain consistent, rational, logical. This is a part of how we think. Get smart. Do you remember uh, at one of our, our visiting speakers, Kenneth Boa, said, I have never in my life regretted an act of obedience, but I have always, every time, regretted acts of disobedience. So, think. Second observation to close with. Take up your cross daily, and when you blow it, don't get discouraged. You will blow it. The more holy that you become, the more you are aware of your lack of holiness. Let me repeat that. The more holy you become, the more you are aware of your lack of holiness. Or put differently, you may not be the best gauge of your own growth. Uh, So don't get discouraged. Your growth may be slow in one area and more rapid in other areas. We have a lot of areas that we always need to change, all need to change in as we're conformed to the image of his son, right? So maybe you're not growing as much as you need to in the area of lust but you are growing well in the area of anger. Maybe you're not growing as well as, as much as you need to in the area of envy, but you are growing in kindness. Be patient with yourself. We're, in, we're on a path here. One of the most common ways Scripture describes holiness is light. Walking in the light. When you're... When I am far from the light, when I'm far away from the light and I look at myself, you know, I look at my clothing and, hey, it looks pretty good. But the closer I get to the light, the more I see the smudges and the dirt and everything else that has been there all along, but I just didn't see it because I was too far away from the light. But the closer I get to the light, the more I see what I need to deal with. And that's the way it is with the Christian life. The proper attitude as you come closer to the light and your personal flaws are exposed to yourself more and more, the, the, the proper attitude is not discouragement or despair, but rather the recognition that God is growing you and you're seeing things that you hadn't seen before. Maybe ask yourself, how are you doing today compared to how you were doing three years ago? Or am I wrestling with the same sin and the same degree in the same way as I was this time last year. Just don't stop. Don't give up. Don't blink. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then finally, just keep in mind, what's the focus? The focus of being conformed to the image of Christ is not looking at yourself and how you think you're doing. The focus is not looking at other Christians to see how they are doing and maybe comparing with yourself. The focus is not looking at the world and how awful things have become over the years. 
The focus of godliness is on loving Jesus and living out God's word by God's spirit over time with God's people to the glory of God before a hurting and watching world. Lord, I thank you for this meditation. Lord, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot of growing to do. And I thank you, I thank you Lord, that you've, you've hit that in so many places in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would love the process of becoming more and more day by day conformed to the image of his son. In whose name we pray, amen.